All right, what a joy it is to be able to gather together, to be able to study God's Word, to receive a word from our Father who is in heaven. I do want to wish you a happy Father's Day to the men in the room who are fathers. Also to those of you who have fathered another in, uh, in discipleship, as spiritual fathers, I want to say also a happy Father's Day to you. It's a gift that we have every week to be able to gather Uh, as God's people, to be able to worship the Lord uh, through song, through giving, uh, through the proclamation of His Word in response to His Word. It wasn't uh, wasn't, uh, planned that in preaching about Jesus' baptism that we ourselves would be baptized and gathering on the way in, Uh, but uh, uh, I do appreciate appreciate that. So my Father's Day weekend uh, got started off uh, yesterday. We, We went to uh, to a park, and we did some hiking, let the kids play in a creek, and afterwards came home, and I gave myself a haircut, which I've been doing now for the last uh, decade plus. No need to go to a barber when you've got as little as I've got to work with, and my kids, uh, when I started to cut my hair, they, they, they shrieked because I went from a two guard to a one guard. That means I just cut it even shorter, and they were like, Dad, you're so bald. You, you shouldn't do that, and, uh, and I was really scaring them. I was, I was freaking them out. I'm like, it's really not much of a, not much, not much, much of a difference. But it did bring a memory to my mind of some years ago. I was leading a youth retreat and uh, took a group of our youth. And one girl uh, had, 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 the, you know, had the audacity. I mean, she asked me, she goes, uh, you got a haircut this week, right? I'm like, I, I did. She goes, why did they mess up right here and right here? You know, what do they do? And so I got to disciple her in the way of a receding hairline. Uh, I, uh, I wish it had something to do with Father's Day. Uh, it, it doesn't. This, is, this was true of me even before I was married or had kids. But... Uh, um, the, and really the only connection this morning as a, as a point of introduction is I'm, I'm preaching on uh, Jesus' baptism. And a major character in the baptism of Jesus is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a man that followed in the footsteps of Elijah. And one of the many things said about him is that he had wild and crazy hair. Uh, there's nothing uh, similar in I, uh, between he and I about our hair, but I do hope to do what he did, which was to point to the glory of Jesus. The song that we just sang... Uh, that the Son of God slain for us, high and lifted up. This is why we've come together this morning. And so may we have our attention turned to Him. Since Easter, we have been uh, in a series called Movement, where we have looked at how the Spirit of God moves through His people to advance His kingdom. Uh, The first message in the series was in Zechariah chapter 4. Together, uh, we memorized a verse in Zechariah chapter 4, That it's not by strength or might, but it's by my spirit, declares the Lord. It's not by strength or might that the temple was rebuilt. It's not by strength or might that anything happens in the scriptures, but by his spirit. That is to say that humanity uh, does not have the strength and the power of God. And were they to uh, pull all of their collective ingenuity and strength and resolve, they would not be able to do what only our God in heaven could do. So we began a journey, and we looked at how God's Spirit has been moving to, through His people to advance His kingdom. And we began with the call of Abram uh, to leave his land and to go into a new land and to hear about the promises given to him. And we studied together the deliverance of God's people by the hand of Moses out of Egypt. And we looked together at the conquest of the promised land and the consecration of God's people through the story of Joshua. 
We also looked at the stories of Ruth, who was the great-grandmother of Jesus. And we looked at the establishment of God's kingdom in Israel under the kingship of David and Solomon in the consecration of God's temple. We concluded the Old Testament portion by looking at how and remembering together about how God worked through his prophets, Elijah and Elisha and Nehemiah, and calling out to God's people to repent of sin and to turn to the Lord because God's people were so frequently a wayward people that would turn away from God. God's Spirit all along has been the one moving throughout the Scriptures to advance His kingdom. And indeed, what we've seen in each of these stories is that it's not by uh, Abram or Abraham or Moses or Joshua or any of the others' strength and ability. It was by God's Spirit through His people to do what only God could do. And in today's text, we're coming to Jesus. Uh, the Son of God, and we are going to look about how Jesus also similarly, not by great showings of strength or might, but by the Holy Spirit moves to advance God's kingdom. See, it's remarkable. If you were to expect God to enter into the world, uh, you and I are quite familiar with it. Uh, Anybody that's been in the church that's heard the story of the gospel, we've perhaps even grown accustomed or maybe even taken for granted that the fact that Our God has left heaven by sending his son, Jesus, the son of God, who is God, to dwell among men. But it's it's actually quite remarkable that God would do that. He has left the throne room of heaven. Jesus, born of a woman who submitted to a manger, who submitted to an animal stall, who lived for most of his life relatively obscurely, Most of what we know and most of the Gospels are about the last three years of his life. This is Jesus who has come, not in a great showing of strength or might, but coming in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, one day Jesus will return. And when he returns, he's going to come on a stallion and he will come in remarkable power and remarkable fury. And at that point in time, it would be better to have been raptured than to be in his wake because he's going to come with vengeance to accomplish his purposes and his will on the earth. But when Jesus came in a manger, he came humbly. He came meekly. And he came in the power of his spirit. And we're going to see how that all really kicks off in the narrative of his baptism here. See, in the Old Testament, God's spirit was mostly confined to particular places and particular times. We see the Holy Spirit in the creation account that the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and hovering over the face of the deep. God's presence was indeed there at creation, but because of the fall, Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence and cast away from the spirit. And mostly what we see after this point in time is the spirit by and large confined to the Ark of the Covenant or the tent of meeting or one day to the Holy of Holies. Now God would move in the power of his spirit through particular prophets of God, but what you and I now experience in having the Holy Spirit reside with each of us is quite the miracle. A miracle that you and I are are very likely to take for granted, but that was not the case of the Old Testament. But here we have in the baptism account of Jesus, which we'll look at in just a moment, how the Holy Spirit descends on Christ and anoints his ministry, and we begin to see the power and the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the life of Jesus Christ leading up to his death and most certainly his resurrection of the grave. Because it would be Romans that would tell us that by the Holy Spirit would Christ come forth out of the grave because it's the Spirit that gives life. So look with me again, Luke chapter 3, just two verses today, 21 and 22. 
Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also go down to be baptized and was praying, the heavens opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. This is my beloved Son, and in him and in you I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning as we come together around your word and as we turn our full attention to you, Lord, we pray that the same Holy Spirit that hovered over the waters in creation, the same Holy Spirit, Lord, that we saw move throughout the Old Testament, the same Holy Spirit that uh, aided Moses and the rest of the biblical writers by the power of the Spirit and their authoring of the text, Lord, we pray that same Holy Spirit that anointed Jesus in his baptism and the same Holy Spirit that would bring him forth from the grave, that the same Holy Spirit that has instructed my mind as I prepared and the same Holy Spirit that empowers my words this morning, that that same Holy Spirit would settle in on our hearts and reveal to us the glory and the splendor of our God in heaven and salvation made known to us through his Son by the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray this morning that your Spirit would indeed fall among us and that we would see your hand at work. In Christ's name, amen. And so now when all the people came to be baptized, Jesus was also baptized. Without context, uh, these verses are perhaps a little bit hard to understand for a couple of different reasons. One, any verse without context is hard to understand, but also because when we think about baptism, we typically think about believer's baptism. But Jesus' baptism and believer's baptism, which we actually practiced this morning in the last service, are actually very similar and related, but they're distinct. Uh, Jesus' baptism is not, of course, a believer's baptism for a lot of different reasons. Um, But also, the context of these verses is that John is, is proclaiming repentance. And for all of the Jews who would come to repent, they would have the opportunity to be baptized by John. See, John the Baptist was a precursor to Jesus, even from their mother's womb. You might remember in the account where uh, even within the wombs, uh, in, in, uh, in John's mother's womb, John leaped for joy and being in the presence of the anointed one who was in, of course, Mary's womb. So John's ministry was to proclaim the kingdom of God and to be a forerunner of Jesus who would come after him. He was like Elijah, telling people to repent of sin and to look for the promised son who would come to set people from their sins. So Jews are preparing themselves. They're coming to the waters, hearing John's account, to repent of their sins and to be baptized. Baptism actually wasn't a new practice. Uh, Baptism at this point in time was somewhat related to ceremonial cleansing of Jews who would come to the temple to be able to worship God. They were coming to have their sins washed away. The way that we teach believers' baptism, of course, is not that the waters are magical and their ability to wash away sins, but that it is the right response to follow in Jesus' example of baptism so that we might enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit by identifying him with him in his death and his resurrection from the grave. The question that really comes up before us is, if all of these sinners were going down to the Jordan to be baptized, why was Jesus going down to the Jordan to be baptized? He has nothing to repent of. Jesus uh, had no sin to confess. Jesus had no need to go down to the waters to be cleansed. So what was happening? As they were lining up, the question is, why, why is Jesus in the line? 
What's he there for? Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. Jesus' baptism, I would like to share with you today, while related to believers' baptism, is not actually identical. They're distinct. What I want to share with you today, and I want to invite you on a journey with me today, is to say that Jesus' baptism is actually the fulfillment of Joshua chapter 3. That Jesus' baptism is actually the fulfillment of Joshua chapter 3. Because you remember that Joshua was leading the conquest through the banks of the Jordan and into a land that was promised to God's people. And as they crossed over the Jordan, they entered into a conquest. And the first place that they went to was Jericho to, to begin the conquest for God's people to inhabit the land that God had promised Abram, Abraham and his descendants. So I'd like to share with you this morning that when Jesus rises out of the waters in Luke chapter 3, that he is actually beginning a new conquest to defeat his enemies and to bring salvation for his people. He emerges from the water actually to begin an ascent, an ascent to Jerusalem, an ascent to the cross, where he will secure victory not only for Israel, but he will secure victory for all of humanity who would place their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And the way that he would do it is not by his great strength or by his great might, but he would do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what happens here in his baptism is the heavens open up and the Holy Spirit descends from heaven in bodily form on Jesus. And the heavens opening up are, uh, are, are foreshadowing of Luke 23 when the, the veil and the curtain in the temple would be split. You see, the way the temple was organized was that there was a holy of holies in the temple where the Spirit of God would dwell, and only one priest could go in there one time of year to offer atoning sacrifices for the sin of the people. But when Jesus was crucified, that veil was torn. It was split, not just so that the, we would have access in, but so that the Holy Spirit would rush out, and that the Holy Spirit would then anoint what would soon follow in the days of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit would fall on God's people and then ultimately dwell within human hearts, that would dwell within us, that would dwell within you. So the heavens opening up or a foreshadowing of that event, and and it's reminiscent, actually, of Genesis 1, when the heavens were opened up and God was creating the heavens and the earth and the Spirit was there in creation. But since the fall, there has been a separation between the heavens and the earth. We are down there, down here, and he is up there, and we have wanted to go and be with him. Of course, he has sent messengers, and he has enacted his plan to reveal his redemptive purposes, but there's been a separation between us and God. But here in this baptism event, the skies are split again. And that connection between the heavens and the earth is reestablished. A voice booming from heaven. This is my beloved son, and in him I'm well pleased. We have the voice of the Father. We have the presence of the Spirit. And we have Jesus there. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here, just as it was in the beginning. As it was in the beginning when they created the heavens and the earth, now we have Jesus with the Father and the Spirit paving a way for recreation by which all of God's people and even the cosmos itself would be set on a pathway towards recreation in this event of Jesus' baptism. Because see, Jesus has come on a conquest, but not the way that you and I would have expected. He's come on a conquest to submit to human form, ultimately leading to a humiliating death where he would begin his final ascension to the right hand of the throne of God. 
before he comes again in power. So we see here the beginnings of recreation, and it's on this journey that I hope to go this morning. So what can we learn from these verses? The first point is this, out of two this morning. So you needn't worry, I will not prolong the message as Will suggested I might. Just two points this morning. Jesus came to identify with sinners. Jesus came to be found among sinners. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized, then he began praying. Why did Jesus go down to where the sinners were? Sinners were hearing the proclamation of John, and so they they came to repent of sin. So they descend to the Jordan, and then they descend into the waters, and they get into the waters in order to be baptized. And they were queuing up there. They were lining up. So the question is this. Why did Jesus come down to be baptized? Why did he get in the line? Again, he had no reason to repent. Jesus was perfect in every way. Jesus is God. Jesus had no need for cleansing. What's actually happening here is is imagery that's important for us to understand, and it's the imagery of descent. Imagery of descent is actually throughout the scriptures. I'll just give one example. The story of Jonah, a story which you might be familiar with. The word of the Lord came to Jonah and sent him on a mission to go and to proclaim the good news to a foreign land. But Jonah didn't want to have any part of it. And so it says that he sought to flee away from the presence of the Lord. And his fleeing away from the presence of the Lord, he, it says, descended down to Joppa. And when he got to Joppa, he descended down into a boat. And once on a boat, he went down underneath to lay down to go to sleep. Now, of course, if you know the story, the, the wind and the waves arise because of God's judgment on Jonah and for God's plan to actually uh, correct Jonah's, Jonah's course to send him to where he needed to go. And so in fear, what the sailors do is they throw Jonah overboard. So he goes down into the waters. And once down in the waters, God appoints a fish to eat Jonah, and Jonah descends down into the belly of the fish. And in Jonah chapter 2, it talks about a further descent down even into Sheol. And by the way, did anyone see the story this week of the man being eaten by a fish and lived to tell about it? Anybody see that? Isn't that incredible? Like, I mean, there's a lot of stories in the Bible that require a lot of faith. But when I saw that, I'm like, thank you, God. Because, you know, there's a lot of times I'm like, is that real? And then there's this dude this week that guy was eaten by a fish and lived to tell about it. It's amazing. Of course we can trust the scriptures. But just as, as Jonah descended down, Jesus descends down. Again, reestablishing this connection between the heavens and the earth. So Jesus comes, born of a woman, coming down to earth. Born and then delivered down into a manger. Because of the persecution that would come, he had to flee and go down into Egypt in exile. And here in this illustration, Jesus is on the banks of the Jordan, and he is going to descend again down the banks of the Jordan. And when he gets into the Jordan, he's going to descend down underneath the waters. And in his death, which it foreshadows, he will leave the presence of the Lord, not to disobey as Jonah disobeyed, but to obey so that he might rescue sinners. Our Savior descends down even into death that he might rescue sinners from death. 
In Jesus' baptism, he is making it clear that he is not going to be removed from the presence of sinners. He has come to be with sinners. Jesus likes being with sinners. It's the sinners that don't like being with, or excuse me, and sinners like being with Jesus. It's the religious people that didn't like being with Jesus. Let me say that again for my confusion there. Jesus likes being with sinners, and sinners like being with Jesus, but it's the pious religious people that didn't like being with Jesus. It was the tax collectors and the sinners that were gathered with them, but it was the Pharisees who were always anxious around Jesus and always antagonistic towards Jesus. And Jesus is really quite unlike any other kind of religious figure. Here, Jesus, who is God, has come to dwell amongst sinners. It's quite remarkable. And in most of the world, this idea is hard for most people to understand because whenever we think about the gods of the, of the, of the world and, and all kinds of uh, you know, Greek mythology or Roman mythology or, or even other religions, God is set apart. He is not to be found mingling amongst men. Uh, if anyone has tried to share the gospel with a Muslim, you've experienced this before because for people who believe Islam, it's incompatible in their mind, one, to believe in a trinity, to believe that God could be son, but it's also hard for them to fathom or really understand that God would humiliate himself in such a way. Why would God leave heaven? I mean, he's God. There's all kinds of ways it would seem to them to redeem the world. Why would God do that? No, I cannot accept that God would take on human flesh. That's offensive to me, is what most Muslims would say. That's why they're so stringent about their purity culture in Muslim culture. But indeed, Christ comes down gets in the line, and is baptized with sinners so that he can identify with us. You know, when I think about baptism, I often think about it, that it's our invitation to identify with Jesus. What we say when we baptize somebody is buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. We are to identify in his death that we might also identify in his resurrection. But Jesus, in this baptism event, by getting in line with the others to be baptized, Jesus is descending to the lowest point, to be identified amongst sinners. He has come to identify with our death. Why would God come into the world to die? He came into the world to die the death that we deserved, to go to the lowest point that we deserved so that he might redeem it. Jesus spent his days ministering not to the healthy, but to the sick. He reclined with sinners, not with religious people. When, when he visited homes, it was that of tax collectors, not priests. He ministered to those who were ceremonially unclean. He cared for women caught in adultery. And he befriended others who were scorned. Religious leaders opposed him. The teachers of the law sought to trap him. They sought to outwit him. Meanwhile, Jesus was caring for widows and orphans. He was healing lepers by touching them. How amazing. He had compassion on the demon-possessed, including a woman, Mary Magdalene, who was a very wayward woman, but Jesus befriended her. And he seeks after lost things. And there's a, a beautiful story in, in, in Luke that I love. It's the illustration of how Jesus pursues after lost things, culminating with the story of the son who went wayward. And what we're to see here is that Jesus leaves the 99 to go rescue the one. We're all lost sons and daughters, and he's come to rescue us. And the imagery is sheep. He leaves the 99 sheep to go find the singular sheep who had gone astray. Jesus goes to rescue those who are astray. Now, when I think of sheep, I think of stuffed animals, in part because uh, my kids have way too many stuffed animals. I actually don't think that. 
Uh, I think they can always have one more. It's my wife that thinks that my kids have way too many stuffed animals because she's uh, often, you know, wrestling them from a dog or finding them in all kinds of places. Um, I, I actually am the one that loves stuffed animals, and so I live vicariously to give my kids stuffed animals. Uh, so uh, they have a stuffed sheep, and when I think of a, when I think of sheep, I often think of of cute little lambs, or I think of Sunday school storyboards where we put the the felt lamb up on the storyboard uh, in children's church. But sheep are actually not so. Uh, My wife recently read a book about uh, sheep and a shepherd's task, and what's interesting about uh, this book is it's to help us understand Jesus' actual ministry to minister amongst sheep through the imagery of a shepherd with actual sheep. And what we learn when you, anyone that's been around sheep is that sheep are actually filthy, dirty creatures. Very obstinate and ornery and stubborn. This is who Jesus has come to identify with. He has come to care for the lost sheep. Why was he in line? Why did he go down there? What he is saying to you and I is, I have come to identify with you. I have come to be found where you are, but not to leave you there, but to take you where I go. (laughs) What he's saying is, I love you. That's why I'm here. I've come down the banks and I've come to be baptized, not only to hear my father give his affirmation from heaven so that I might also share that affirmation with you, so that you could be children of God, so that you would know your place as the beloved in God's heavenly kingdom. God has come to us in this way to tell us that he loves us, that he loves you. Christ comes in his baptism again to identify with broken humanity, but he emerges out of the water to bring reconciliation and to bring redemption and to bring healing, to bring salvation to his people. Our second point is this, that Jesus is the long-awaited promised and beloved Son of God. That Jesus is the long-awaited, promised, beloved Son of God. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. That's what the voice coming from heaven says. This is the Son we've been waiting for. Genesis chapter 3. The Son of a woman who would come and crush the serpent. This is the Son we've been waiting for. In Psalm 2, a king, all those that would bless the son would be saved. In Psalm chapter 2, this is the son of Jeremiah 33, 17. This is the son of 2 Samuel 7. This is the son that has been promised in these verses and in scores of other Old Testament verses. A coming son who had set God's people free. The beloved son affirmed with God's voice from heaven. The verses that follow these two short ones that we looked at today, beginning in verse 23, are a genealogy. And oftentimes we get bogged down in genealogies and and we kind of race through them. It's hard to read a genealogy in a quiet time, I would imagine. But God includes genealogies for a purpose in his Bible. Notice with me in verse 23, it begins, and I'm not going to read every name in this genealogy. I'm going to highlight a few that you might recognize from along our journey in this movement series. Verse 23, it says, When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. He was the son of Joseph. We remember this from Christmas time. But verse 27, he is a son of Zerubbabel. Do you remember Zerubbabel? He was the one in Zechariah 4 
rebuilding the temple when the exiles are coming back from Babylon and repopulating Jerusalem. The one by whom it was told it wasn't going to come by strength or might, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the son of David, verse 31. He is a son of Boaz, verse 32. He is a son of Isaac, and a son of Abraham, and a son of Terah, verse 34. He is a son of Noah, verse 36. And indeed, he is a son of our father, Adam. Why? Why include all of this? It's to help us to see that the God that spoke the world into existence by means of the firstborn son, when the spirit hovered over the waters, the God, the triune God that created then is the triune God that is with us now. And this Jesus is directly descended from Adam. And as Adam was the first of creation, Christ is the firstborn of recreation. He has come to redeem and recreate. He is the long-awaited son. And in the lineage of death, Jesus is life. In a lineage of death, Jesus is life. All of these people have in common, except for perhaps uh, we know Joseph, and I don't know about Joseph's father, but everyone is dead in this genealogy. Kind of reminds me of Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4, and then also chapter 5. We teach the first few chapters of the Bible and always come back to them. They are the apologetic for our day. Everything comes back to the ways that God created and how God spoke in the beginning. And when we work our way through the Genesis account, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and, and 4, we often get to 5 and kind of rush through it so we can get to 6. 6 is where the story of Noah is told. Well, what about chapter 5? Chapter 5 is actually one of the saddest stories of the whole entire Bible. It may not seem like it to us. This person lived, and then they died. This person lived, and they died. This person lived, and they died. This person lived, and they died. Then there was Enoch, who walked with the Lord, and then he was taken up. This person lived, and they died. This person lived, and they died. Death after death after death after death. And this is not the world that our God created. Death entered the world when they sinned, and death was made manifest when Cain kills his brother, but death was not the reality that God created. God created life, and he sent Jesus in order to recreate life. Jesus is the Son, better than Adam and better than all the rest, the Son who's come to recreate life. Jesus is life in a lineage of death. And that's when the pronouncement comes. Because he ascends out of the waters, and you can see the glory and the joy of the Father coming forth in this voice, this is my beloved son. This is the one whom I love. And he begins his ascent. He begins his ascent out of the waters and then up the banks of the Jordan. He has now crossed the Jordan. We often talk about this time in Jesus' life as the beginning of his earthly ministry, and it certainly it is that. But it's so much more than that. I'm going to come back to a point I made earlier. In arising out of the waters, Jesus is initiating a new conquest. Just as Moses had passed through the waters fleeing the bondage of Egypt, Jesus passes through the waters to pave our way from our bondage and our slavery to sin. And just as Joshua passed through the waters to conquer the promised land, Jesus passes through the waters to pave our way to a new promised land. But interestingly, Moses and Joshua passed through on dry ground, but Jesus would not. Jesus had to enter the waters. Because what do we say about the baptism event? It's a death. It's emblematic of death. There is a dissension under the water, and then there's a resurrection, as it were. 
Jesus doesn't pass through on dry ground because Jesus' life is not spared. Jesus' life ultimately leads to a rugged cross. Indeed, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, and our mind should go to Joshua chapter 4. Because in Joshua chapter 4, he appoints for there to be a stone, uh, a stone tower of remembrance. And there are 12 stones that they place there on the banks of the Jordan. They would remember the deliverance of God into a new promised land. Now Jesus is ascending out of the waters, and his first task is to appoint disciples. How many disciples? Twelve. I wish I could go through all of the imagery throughout both texts to help you see how God is weaving in a story so that our mind can go back there. But they're everywhere. Jesus is the conqueror, the one who has come to defeat his enemies, the one to redeem sinful humanity and to conquer death. And so he emerges out of the waters and he begins his ascent, his ascent up to Jerusalem, where he's going to ascend Golgotha, where he will ascend a cross. And you might remember a couple weeks ago when Billy was preaching John chapter 3, he reminded us that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, all who would look to it, would look up to it, would be saved. Now here is our moment. All who would look to Jesus who would ascend to the cross, we would be saved. But what is it about the crucifixion of Jesus that leads to our salvation? It's there when we see the innocent, humble, slain, holy Son of God bleeding out on a cross that we ought to be moved to repentance. That we might be moved by his glory to turn away from a sinful life and to turn away from the passions and the desires of our flesh to look to the one who came to redeem us from it. We see the Savior bleeding out and it forces us to come to a place to make a decision about sin. Are we going to continue in this pathway of sin and lose the victory? Be found conquered by it? Or are we going to follow Jesus through the waters of baptism in his death and his resurrection? And are we going to ascend to a new life in Jesus? where the Holy Spirit comes upon us to empower us to live the life that he has created us to live, a life, a blessing. And again, it's here where the Father cries out, this is my beloved Son, in him I am well pleased. His act of obedience and baptism foreshadows the act of obedience when he goes to the cross, where the Father's wrath is completely satisfied and poured out on our crucified and bloodied Savior. But praise be to God. Praise be to God that he doesn't remain dead. He ascends again. He is taken down from the cross and he descends to his lowest point. Three days in a cold grave. Dead. God, dead in the grave. But then he begins his ascent. And you can hear the Father's voice. This is my beloved Son on Easter Sunday, resurrected from the dead. This is the one. That's my boy, is what we would say, right? Here he is coming out of the grave. That's my son. He is my beloved one. He is the one that drank the cup. He is the one that said, nevertheless, not my will be done. He is the one that obeyed to the very end, even his death. And he is the one that comes forth out of the grave. He is the beloved son. We look to him and we glory in him and we lift him up. And what's so amazing What's so amazing is he's going to spend some time with the disciples and he's going to give a commission and he's going to invite you and I to participate in the story. 
He's going to invite us to be baptized, you know, and to learn all the things that God's commanded. And then he's going to ascend to heaven. And when he gets there, he's going to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. He'll come again, but here he is, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, and he invites you and I to go there with him. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that worth our worship this morning? Isn't that worth our worship as we live out the faith once for all delivered to the saints? It's by faith that you and I can be called sons of God. John chapter 1 says this, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. So that we too would ascend out of the waters of baptism, but that we wouldn't have to ascend a cross where we actually belong. But that one day we might ascend out of the grave, but if he comes first, we'll ascend in the skies with him when we go to be with him. Because we will one day be with him in glory. What an amazing story. It's every bit true. Not like a fable we read to our kids. Everything I've said is 100% true. So the conclusion this morning is to see the glory of the Father, to set your gaze upon him, and to set your gaze upon Jesus, his one and only Son who came to rescue you from sin and from death, and to delight in him. Today is Father's Day, and oftentimes on Father's Day we would take the occasion to encourage fathers in the room and how to be better fathers. Uh, I need that. I need the encouragement and the admonishment of being a better father. Iron indeed sharpens iron, and we come together to help one another in that task. But this morning, this message is about joy, enjoying and delighting in the love of our Father, because by faith you can be called a beloved son of God. By faith his voice will say of you, this is my beloved son or daughter, and in you I'm well pleased, not because of your righteous good works, but because of what Jesus has done for you and your faith in him. This is our time to look to the word and to look to the heavens where God has come to us and to worship our Father who is in heaven and to enjoy his glory and his power and his love. Because see, it is God the Father who has orchestrated all of this together from beginning to end. And he never failed along the way. When Abraham was unfaithful, our God was faithful. When Moses doubted, our Father in heaven never wavered. When Joshua was prideful, God, our Father, was steadfast and humble. When Ruth was destitute, God, her Father, saw her and provided for her. When David sinned, God, our Father, restored him. When Solomon achieved the glory of the pinnacle of Israel's kingdom and the establishment of the temple, God, our Father, pointed forward to even better days for his people. When Elijah and Elisha and Nehemiah grieved over Israel's sin and grieved over their own sin and fell into a kind of depression over sin, it was God who waited patiently all the while purposefully acting for them and for us, bringing all of these things together in redemptive redemptive history so that mankind would be saved and that you and I can enjoy our God's salvation. When you and I fall short in the ways that our fathers before us fall short, our God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself We've come this morning to worship a God who is perfect in every way and to confess that we are not and to place our faith and our trust in him. Brothers and sisters, are you wearied by your sin? 
Jesus has come to be with you. Are you wearied by everyone else's sin? Jesus has commissioned us to go and love them with his love and to call them to a better way, to call them with the love and the grace of God out of sin and into the relationship that God has made prepared for them by the work of Jesus. And so with John the Baptist this morning, I say, behold the salvation of our God. Some years ago, uh, I spent uh, an extraordinary amount of time in the home of, uh, of Chad and Heather Hood. They were our college pastors at the time, and I just so loved to go be with them. And uh, Chad's a disciple maker, and I always just loved to go and, and watch him live his life. And one of the things he would do is just invite us over at all kinds of time. And so we got to see him uh, in all kinds of different, uh, wearing all kinds of different hats. And so there was one day I was with him in the kitchen talking about who knows what, something going on in the world, and, uh, and I was watching him parent. Uh, he, he said to me, he said, hey, watch this. And anyone in the room that's ever spent time with Chad uh, can remember him at some point or another saying, hey, hey, watch this. And so the kids were, were playing. One of the kids was playing in the, in the living room, and he, they were playing with toys. And uh, uh, Chad had a piece of chocolate. And uh, what that son loved more than toys was chocolate. And so he said, hey, watch this. He said, hey, come here. I've got something for you. And someone's like, no, I'm, I'm playing with my toys, Dad. I'm good. I'm good. He's like, no, son, trust me. I've got something for you. Come here. He's like, no, Dad, I'm playing with my toys. I'm good to go. Well, you know how it goes with a father trying to bless her son and, and beckoning uh, a son to come. It, it goes from a kind of a joyous desire to bless to now a son being kind of irritated. Why is my son not listening to me? Son, I've got something for you. Trust me. Come. Leave me alone, Dad. I'm playing with my toys. So then he holds up the piece of candy. And he says, look. And so the son's attention looks up, sees the candy, darts to try to go get it, right? He saw it. He knew it. Oh, I love this chocolate more than my toys. But when he went to reach to grab it, he's like, no, son, you didn't trust my word. You're not going to receive this blessing. Maybe next time you'll learn to listen to my voice. Brothers and sisters, this morning I invite you to listen to the voice of God. Lay down your fight with sin Cease your struggle and disobedience. Lay down the toys that you're distracted with and receive the good gift of the Holy Spirit of God. If you're a believer, you've trusted in him, but you've been, you've been just living it up in sin and you're here this morning, you hear this message, your sin and your flesh are not going to lead you to the place you think it's going to. It's always going to be an empty well. And in fact, it ends in death. But Jesus has told us a better way that ends in life, and he has given us his Holy Spirit that all who would trust and believe in him and would abide in the Spirit, God would give him victory over sin, and one day soon, a victory over death. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you this morning to respond to God, and if you've never trusted in the Lord, if you've never believed in the Lord, if you've never acknowledged your sin before a holy God and placed your faith in this one who was lifted up on the cross, I invite you this morning to do just that. Let today be the day of your salvation. Let today be the day when the Father's voice can be said about you. <laughs> That's my boy. That's my beloved son. That's my beloved daughter. And because of Jesus, in him and her, I'm, I am well pleased. Lord, as we come to this time of invitation, Lord, I pray that your spirit, Lord, because of the glory of this message that I did not author, Lord, you authored it from beginning to end. Lord, I pray Lord, that your spirit would fall and would meet among us. And Lord, that we would hear your message and Lord, we would respond and do exactly what the spirit prompts us to do. 
our Savior came to identify with us in the waters that we might be able to identify with him in the resurrection. Father, we pray that you would come and that you would meet among us. In Jesus' name.